We're talking about two kingdoms, and, uh, and actually, the, the more I'm, I'm in on this series, and, and this isn't the easiest series I've ever preached, and I, I know it's caused some cognitive dissonance in some people, uh, but the, the more I'm in this series, the more I feel, I, I see the importance of being in this series, and I, I'm very happy that, that uh, the coin is dropping in the slot for a lot of people. Uh, people who were, you know, maybe kind of confused on the first message were less confused in the last one. And, and, uh, and so there's a, there's a clarity about the distinctness of the kingdom of God that is happening in the course of this series. Uh, I want to, for this morning, read from Luke chapter 12, starting with verse 13. And Jesus is here teaching uh, a crowd, and someone from within the crowd says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now, in Jewish law, the firstborn got all the inheritance, and whether anyone else got anything was up to the good graces of the firstborn. And what this person's trying to do is say, force him to give me some of that inheritance. And there was in the culture some dispute about the legality of this and, and should the law be changed. And so he's trying to get Jesus to weigh in on this legal issue. But Jesus said to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? What Jesus is saying there is basically, do I look like your lawyer? He says, well, I will tell you this. I'm not going to weigh in on that issue. I, I, I'm sure maybe Jesus had an opinion about it. Maybe the disciples had an opinion about it, whether the law was just or whatever. But, but Jesus, as, as the kingdom of God here on earth, he wants to give a distinctly kingdom perspective. So he says, I'm not going to bite the bait on your mutually exclusive alternatives about the firstborn keeping it or not keeping it. What I will do is offer you a distinct, unique kingdom perspective, and that is this. Whatever you do, however you resolve this issue, take care against all kinds of greed, because you've got to know that one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He says that to the guy asking the question, I suspect if the brother, the firstborn was hanging around, he'd say to the firstborn as well. That's a unique kingdom thing. Guard your heart, be, be, beware of greed. But he doesn't weigh in. As he, this is what he does throughout the Gospels. He refuses to bite the bait. He won't let the culture... The lawyers, the politicians, set his agenda. He's got his own agenda. Then I want, I want to read another passage, but not from Scripture. I want to read a passage from uh, one of the authors that I think is inspired, though not canonical, uh, C.S. Lewis. I just love this man's thinking because he usually agrees with me. <laughs> uh, and therefore, you know he's right. I mean, it's very clear. This is from uh, the book Screwtape Letters. Uh, a lot of you have read that, and there's some people in our church that are studying it right now as part of our Theological Institute. This letter is written right in the middle of the Second War. It is uh, a, from a senior demon talking to a lesser demon about how to tempt people. And Screwtape, the senior demon, says this, whichever he adopts, and he's talking about patriotism or pacifism, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. This is what we've been talking about the last two weeks. Then let him, under the influence of the partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part of his religion. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or in favor of pacifism. And once you have made, listen to this, once you've made the world an end, however laudable the end of the world is, the goal that you have for the world is, once you've made the world an end and faith a means to that end, you have almost won your man. 
It really makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, whether it's pacifism or idealism or any other ism, provided that meetings and pamphlets, policies, movements, causes and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, his word for love, provided he comes to trust those causes and that activity more than he trusts his distinctly kingdom thing, you've got your man. In fact, he's ours. And the more religious he is, in terms of those causes, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cageful down here. Down here in hell. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. That's what we've been talking about. The fusion together of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. It's a ploy of the enemy. Let's pray. And can I get some people around the auditorium who will just keep me covered in prayer on this message? Wonderful, thanks. Our heavenly dad, our request right now is the same as it was last week. Let your kingdom come. Let your unique, distinct, foolish-looking, radical power underneath kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let it be done in our brains as it is in heaven, in our hearts as it is in heaven, in our lives as it is in heaven, in our wallets as it is in heaven, in our thinking as it is in heaven. God, crystallize in our inner mind a vision for your unique kingdom and depollute it of all the influences of the kingdom of this world. That we might, God, be your radical, peculiar, sold-out disciples who are used by you to spread the mustard seed throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. There are, we've been saying, two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God is a power under kingdom. It's the power of love, Calvary love that, that wins by influence, by changing hearts. It's a power under kingdom, whereas the kingdom of the world is a power over kingdom. The kingdom of God has Jesus Christ as its Lord. The kingdom of the world looks to Caesar, but ultimately it's run. The Bible tells us by the God of this age, the principality and power of the air, the one who uh, controls the entire world, 1 John 5, 19, and the one who uh, uh, holds all the kingdoms of this world, Luke chapter 4, his name is Satan. God uses the kingdoms of this world to keep law and order, so there's a God influence there, but there's also a demonic influence there, which is why in every version of the kingdom of this world, there's some are relatively good, some are relatively bad, but they all reflect some godly influence and some ungodly influence. There's the kingdom of the cross, where, we, where the, the, the uh, followers replicate Calvary. That's how the kingdom of God is spread. That's our main job versus the kingdom of the sword, which tries to have, have power over, and that's its way of spreading its kingdom. A ploy of the devil, as C.S. Lewis saw, is to fuse those two kingdoms because when that is done, I think both kingdoms lose. Historically, both kingdoms have lost, but the one that God's most concerned with is the kingdom of God. You can't help but compromise the kingdom of God when you fuse it with any aspect of the kingdom of this world. Well, the enemy's ploy is, is to fuse loyalty that belongs to God, loyalty that belongs to Jesus Christ, an allegiance that should be singularly devoted to the kingdom of God and have it transferred to some degree or entirely over to some aspect, some version of the kingdom of this world. When that happens, you see, when our, when our allegiance to country or allegiance to philosophy or allegiance to state or allegiance to cause takes on the allegiance that we ought to be having with God. There's a biblical word for that, and it's called idolatry. Idolatry is any time we get our worth and significance and value and sense of rightness from something other than Jesus Christ. 
When your identity and, and, and feeling, you know, your, your security and, and, and worth comes from being American versus Iraqi or Democrat versus uh, Republican or this cause versus that cause or this philosophy versus that philosophy, you are in danger of idolatry. No different than if a person were to get life from being Baptist as opposed to Lutheran or, or being an openness theologian rather than Calvary. Those aren't the kind of things we're supposed to be getting life from. Those aren't the kind of things we're supposed to be getting value from. For the kingdom of God person, our sense of identity, our sense of worth, our sense of value, mission, and purpose is to come from Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ alone. And nothing is to compete with that. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. What concerns me is I see in our culture, and it's been around for a while, it ebbs and flows, and right now it's on a flow, is a dangerous fusion of the kingdom of the God with the kingdom of this world. I heard a well-known politician recently, uh, quote John chapter 1, verse 4, where it says that light shined in the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it. And he applied it to America. America shines in the darkness, but the darkness will not overtake it. And uh, as Americans, that might give you goosebumps, but as a kingdom person, it should give you pause. Because what that politician is doing is basically equating America with Jesus Christ. The verse applies to Jesus Christ. And while I'm sure America has a lot of light to shed in this world, it's not the light of Jesus Christ. And the way that America or any other country is going to shed their light will not be the way that Jesus Christ shed his light because he shed his light by dying for his enemies. Uh, no country's ever going to do that. And it's a dangerous fusion. It's a dangerous thing when, when, when we begin to fuse loyalties like that. And it's not just a right-wing conservative evangelical problem. It's a leftist thing, too. I, I, I might have mentioned last week about a time I was in a service where the preacher was waxing eloquent. I mean, it was good. It was a good message on freedom and all this other kind of stuff. But then the punchline of the whole thing, and I'm not sure how he came to this conclusion based on what he said previously, but the punchline was George Bush Sr. he was talking about. George Bush Sr. is anti-Christ. And no one who voted for him can call himself a Christian. You see, now you're taking the unambiguous beauty of the gospel and confusing it with your ambiguous estimation of George Bush and you're fusing them together. And all the people who want to say amen to your message, now a lot of them can't say amen to what you just said. Uh, the fusion of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world, whenever we do that, we are playing into screw tape. And we're coming under that influence. We need to keep the two distinct. Whenever we fuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world, disastrous consequences happen. And I've been going through five of them. I went through two last week. I'm going to try to get it through another two uh, this week. Disastrous consequence number one that we dealt with last week is that when we fuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world and, for example, believe that we are a Christian nation, then what happens is our distinct witness for Jesus Christ is compromised. The one distinct witness we have is our empowerment and willingness to follow Jesus, to pick up our cross, to lay down our life for others, to demonstrate unsurpassable love, to communicate unsurpassable worth. God has wired it into creation and wired it into the DNA of the church that that's the primary way that the gospel is to be spread. As the world sees our love, they are to know that Jesus Christ is for real because they see the reality in our lives. That's how it's supposed to work. But if... A kingdom of, of the world gets identified as Christian. A kingdom of the world can't possibly witness like that. God doesn't expect the kingdoms of this world to witness like that. God doesn't expect the kingdoms of this world to turn the other cheek and to love their enemies and to bless those who persecute it. 
By definition, a power over kingdom cannot be the exemplification of the power under kingdom. You can no more have a kingdom of God nation than you can have a kingdom of God petunia or tulip or cucumber or orangutan or aardvark. You're confusing categories there. But see, when we tag this as a Christian nation, then that gets communicated, and then people, whatever, whatever the nation does, they think that's what Christians do. So now we got a lot of people in different parts of the world who think that what it is to be Christian is to uh, ex- export Baywatch. That's the number one exported m- movie that we have, TV show. And they think, oh, look what these Christians do. And they look at, uh, you know, our, our, the, the sexual morals of our country, and they look at our, our, our bombers, and they look at some of the history, and they go, that's what Christians do. And you know what? There is such a block in their mind towards the genuine Christianity. Why? Because of this fusion taking place. It is to our advantage, to the kingdom of God's advantage, to say as loud as Jesus said to Pilate, God's kingdom is not of this world. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. And the way that the kingdom of God goes forward is not at all like the way the kingdoms of the world go forward. And to keep those two two, two distinct, so that now we have a unique opportunity to communicate the unique distinctive thing that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, by definition, happens whenever Calvary takes place. When things look like Calvary... People laying down their life for their enemies and ascribing worth to those that the culture deems worthless, that is the kingdom of God by definition. Wherever you don't have that, that by definition is not the kingdom of God. We are, before we're participants of any kingdom of this world, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And carry that badge and keep that, that citizenship distinct. Problem number two is we lose our missionary focus in America. When we think this is already a Christian nation, we think that, uh, that missions is about what goes on in some other part of the world, and we, we, we get lax, we get apathetic. You know, every culture, not every, but almost every culture has its civic religion, its sort of social religion. It's part of the culture. In some parts of the world, it's Hinduism or Buddhism. In America, the civic religion is a sort of deistic form of Christianity, which is a belief, an abstract theoretical belief in God and yada yada, but it doesn't make any difference in your life. And every poll that's been done shows that, in fact, that's kind of the situation of America. It's a deistic form of of Christianity. It's a veneer Christianity. It's a a polish. You see, if, if, if we don't see past that veneer, and if we think that the veneer is close to the truth, then we'll spend a whole lot of time polishing the veneer. Uh, and, and we'll define our faith as, as primarily about making sure that in God we trust stays on pennies and we pray before football games. And that just reinforces this cultural assumption that what Christianity is about is this sort of social religion. It's about being nice. It's about saying a prayer before a football game. It's about keeping in God we trust on the penny. But I submit to you that that is the problem we're up against. It's not part of the solution. The problem that we have in this culture is that most of the people are sort of kind of quasi-socially Christian. And Christianity is about doing decent things and going to church on Easter and Christmas. That's the thing that we're up against. But if we, spend, if, if we don't see that it's just a veneer and doesn't bring anyone closer to the kingdom of God, then we try to tweak it, try to polish it, reinforce that image, and most tragically, we lose our own missionary edge. Because we think, well, we're already kind of in a Christian nation. We don't live the same way we'd live if we were in China, Indonesia, or Cambodia. 
But I submit to you, if we will see past the veneer, define the kingdom of God as Calvary's sort of character, as Calvary's sort of love, and that will give you spectacles to see what's really going on in this culture. And by that criteria, the kingdom of God criteria, this is not a kingdom of God nation. This is not a Christian nation. Pull back the veneer, and it's as pagan as any nation is. And we are as much missionaries here as if you were in Indonesia, Cambodia, China, or anywhere else in this world. You're a missionary. You're a person with a mission. We've got a mission to live out. And so we need to, as much as anybody on the planet, take seriously 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says the good soldier does not get overly entangled in civilian affairs, but is always seeking to please his commanding officer. We compromise our witness for Christ. We lose our missionary focus. Number three, when we fuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world, when we blur those categories, think we're already in a Christian nation, we invariably end up trusting power over more than power under. And this is really a temptation because the natural mind, our common sense, leans more towards power over than power under. Power under, in fact, is foolishness to the world. Trying to win by dying doesn't make sense to the natural mind, and that is what we are called to do. We are conditioned to trust power over. And so when we buy this, we spend a lot of time trying to get more power over in the culture and think we're doing the kingdom of God if we can just pass a few more laws and, and get a little more legislation. But once you taste of the power of the sword and see how practical and commonsensical it is, we begin to use it in the church as well as outside the church. If we try to make the nation into a church, we end up treating the church as though it were a nation. And we use power over tactics, trying to bring about conformity in people's behavior and think that that is actually the kind of change the kingdom of God is talking about. If you've wondered why churches seem to be so prone towards shame tactics, towards uh, guilting out people, towards relying on the oughts and the shoulds and the better do's and social pressure and those sorts of things, trying to bring about transformation from the outside in. If you wonder where that comes from, I suggest to you it's because of an addiction to a power over mindset. We believe that if people are really going to change, you got to do it from the outside. You got to make them feel uncomfortable, got to make them shamed or, or whatnot. There was a revealed around 2001, I think it was, that in the Bible Belt, uh, the divorce rate was 7 to 10% higher than the national average. The national average is by far and away the highest on the planet Earth. And so in this Christian nation that already has the, uh, the highest divorce rate on the planet, right in the heart of it, in the Bible Belt, we've got an even higher percentage of divorces. And of course, this was, this was embarrassing to a lot of religious leaders. And, and immediately there was set out in magazines and in emails and all sorts of stuff, uh, it, it discussions about this, this problem and what are we going to do about this problem. And some of the articles and some of the emails and some of the people on talk shows I, had a lot of wisdom about this, but a lot of it didn't. One email that I got perfectly illustrates the point I'm making about our confidence and power over, where this well-known Christian spokesperson said, what this embarrassing thing reveals is that we're not coming down hard enough on marriage. We're not preaching marriage enough, and we're not proclaiming what a sin, what a grievous sin divorce is, and, 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 and uh, how far from God's ideal remarriage is. We've got to crack down on divorce and crack down on remarriage. And, and, and if we're preaching this more and preaching it longer and preaching it more fervently in the church, this will solve the problem. And, and, and I, I'm not a rocket scientist, but here's what I'm thinking. Uh, uh, 
however much or however little people in the church are hearing about marriage, they're hearing about it more than the people who don't go to church. And yet people in the church are getting divorced 10% higher than people who don't go to church. So what makes you think that doing more of the same with a little more anger is going to solve the problem? One could reasonably come to the opposite conclusion. Maybe you should start copying the world. Maybe start preaching less or something. Uh, you know, because you seem to be aggravating the problem. And as a matter of fact, I think you are aggravating the problem. This mindset. See, here, look at the mindset. Here's the sin. We've got to conquer the sin. How do you conquer the sin? Outside in. You just got to, you know, come down on it. And if you just say it loud enough with enough shame, with enough threats, with enough leverage, with enough sword kind of power, well, that will, that will get the sheep to walk in line, you see? Well, see, what that often does is it actually makes the situation worse. Worse, because when you've got a whole social stigma about having a problematic marriage, all the problems go into hiding. And they go underneath the surface. You know, it's not safe to, pick up, to peek out your head when there's a sword that's being wielded. And so now, instead of having an open forum where you can deal with issues, everything looks a whole lot better. That the kingdom of the world can accomplish. That threats can accomplish. That, that shame can accomplish. Things will look better. But in fact, everything that needs addressing is underneath the surface. Because the bottom line, I mean, why doesn't anyone think about this? Or some have, but... But see, see, why not take a distinct kingdom of God approach to this and ask the question, how can we do Calvary towards marriages? How can we lay down our life for newly married people? How can we come under them instead of coming over them? Maybe we should make it so, help people, you know, uh, uh, move in the direction where they actually want to stay married. That might solve, you know, some problems. Instead of having rules around when they don't want to get married, why not, you know, see what we can do. What kind of, how can we sacrifice of our time and our resources to help people have a better marriage? rather than cracking down on it once they've got a divorce. You see, it's about a power under versus a power over. And when we use power over, we may tweak out the outside, but you never change the inside. There was a study done in the 80s that showed that the highest rate of alcoholism was, uh, among professing Christians was in churches that preached total abstinence. And, and, and See, that, that's not surprising. Because if you're in a church that really toes the line on that, cracks down on that particular thing, well, then, then you got an issue. You're not going to come out with that. But see, if, you have a, if there's a power under culture going on where you support people who are struggling, you come around people, you, 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 you die for people, you sacrifice for people, you, you form groups where they can talk things out loud, now you're in an environment where, thing, where, where healing can take place. There is in the church a, a, a trust in power over, a trust in changing people from the outside in. One person last year wrote to me in the middle of my love series uh, that, that went on forever. Um, basically, he said this. So are you saying that we are just, we're just supposed to love the homosexual and trust that God will be working in his heart? Well... Well, see, here's the thing. I, I got two questions. One is, why is that question about homosexuals? And if you're going to ask the question, let's ask it about, you know, people who are greedy and, and people who have idolatrous patriotism. I mean, let, let, let's, let, let's broaden the scope of things. But, but, but my more fundamental question is this. What do you mean by just? Are we just supposed to trust God and, and, and love them outrageously like Jesus loves them? Uh, dude, that's everything. <laughs> dude, that is the kingdom of God. Dude, that is where transformation takes place. That's how I was changed. That's how you are changed. That's how every person is going to be changed. 
Yes, we trust God to be working in people's hearts because you see, the laws and the guilt and the shame and the external pressure, those things can all change on the inside, but as I said, or change the outside, polish up the outside, keep a nice veneer. But as I said last week, only God using the outrageous love and patience of his people working with one another, only God can get on the inside and begin to change the way the person feels about themselves, feels towards God, the way they see themselves, the way they understand the world. Only God can take the rapist out of the raper and the stealing out of a thief and the, and the and the lust out of a pervert and, and the self-righteousness out of a self-righteous person. Only God can change the inside. Only God can genuinely, working on the inside, change a sinner into a saint instead of making a sinner just look like a saint on the outside. Yes, we're going to trust God to be working in people's lives. Amen. He said back to me at one point, so that I guess that means you're never going to be preaching that homosexuality is sin. You know, yeah, you bet you, it, it's, homosexuality misses the mark. Hamartia, that's the word for sin. And in the same breath I'm going to say that, I want to say self-righteousness misses the mark. And gluttony misses the mark. Greed misses the mark. Uh, idolatrous patriotism misses the mark. Saying fool to your neighbor misses the mark. Not loving your enemies misses the mark. Not, laying not loving enough misses the mark. Being apathetic towards the poor, that misses the mark. We all miss the mark. That's the point. We're all sinners who are saved by God's grace. And that grace, praise God, is working in all of our lives changing us from one degree of glory for another. And sometimes he leads us to walk with one another and ironing, sharpening iron, that's a God-glorifying thing. But we preach the gospel of God and trust that God will apply it. When and how, in his infinite wisdom, how, how a person needs to hear it, how, what, what to work on, when to work on it, yes, we're gonna trust power under, the Calvary kind of love that will eventually win the world. That's the only power I do trust. And it's the power of God working in our lives. Don't put your trust in the power over. They ask your opinion on how to use it. Vote. Pray about how to vote. But in, as kingdom of God people, our trust is going to be in power under. And power under, you see, costs us more than power over. Power over is simply a matter of being able to put on a paper, here's what you should do. Power under is always about what can I do for you. It always costs us something. Fourth, the fourth disastrous consequence and this is huge, is we let the kingdom of the world set our agenda. We set the agenda for the kingdom of the world. We play into their rules. We, if, if, if we don't consciously separate the kingdom of God from the kingdom of the world, we end up playing the game of the kingdom of the world. The guy came to Jesus and said, well, here's your two alternatives. You know, should my brother keep the inheritance? Or are you going to weigh in and tell him that God wants him to share it with me? Now, use your authority to solve this issue, Jesus said, I, I'm not your lawyer. I'm not going to let you set my agenda. Here's my agenda. You've got to watch out for your heart because life doesn't consist in the abundance of things. He wouldn't allow the culture, and he did this repeatedly throughout the Gospels because he was in a politically hotbed, uh, political hotbed uh, during his ministry, but he wouldn't let them set his agenda. What concerns me is the church frequently allows the world to set our agenda. We let them define the problems, and we let them define the solutions, and then we try to use kingdom authority uh, to weigh in on this solution versus that solution or that solution versus this solution. We play by their rules. And the problem is that, that their rules create unresolvable conflicts. There are problems in this world that the natural mind just cannot solve. And the way they construe the problems uh, uh, prevents there being a, a, a solution that everyone can agree upon. There's various solutions out there, but they're all ambiguous, meaning by that there are a reasonable, well-intentioned people could disagree with them. It's all ambiguous out there. The way the world defines debates is always with a win-lose equation 
rather than a win-win equation. They can't work together for the common good. Rather, they polarize on extremes, and it's always about power over. And the only thing that counts for victory is winning and the opponent losing. And so they, they, power over kingdoms always fight, sometimes with bombs, sometimes with, uh, with, with bullets. You've got to crush your opponent. And if you can't use that, well, then you use words. You use slanderous words. You use slogans. You use propaganda to rally up the troops on your side, to create emotion on your side, and invariably you demonize your opponents. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We're the right ones, they're the wrong ones. And, and you vilify them. And the kingdom of the world is pulls apart. And when the church accepts that way of doing stuff, guess what? The church is divided, pulls apart. And the devil laughs all the way to the bank. You see? And then the people think, instead of saying, what is the distinct kingdom thing that we can do here? We don't do a kingdom thing. We just do a world thing, and we think that that's the kingdom thing. How you spend a half hour every four years becomes all of a sudden your kingdom accomplishment. You voted a particular way. I submit to you, we have to always ask the question, what is the distinct kingdom thing that we can do? The, a, a classic example of this, and take a deep breath because I'm going to break a no-talk rule here, but it seems to me in church we shouldn't have to have no-talk rules. <laughs> classic example of this is the abortion issue. And I'm aware that we've so bought into the agenda of this world that, as I said that, some of you, your heart, heart rate went up and you're starting to sweat and, and, and if you've been influenced, if you've bought into the way the culture defines this issue, and I'm, I'm just going to tag this here, you, you'll be wondering, you know, which category do I fit into? How does he vote? Maybe even, how's he trying to get us to vote? But so I'm going to tell you up front, I'm not trying to get you to vote. Vote a certain way. I'm not going to tell you how I vote. I will tell you that I have the exact right position on this in terms of the kingdom of the world, but I'm not running for office, so... I've got a solution to this, but no one's listening to me. But what I'm, what I'm concerned with up here is a distinct kingdom of God perspective on this. Look, at, here's how it plays out in the kingdom of this world. You've got a pro-life group. You've got a pro-choice group. Uh, you know, you, you've got the rights of the unborn versus the rights of the mother. And that's how, that's how the world presents the debate. Now, who's going to win on this thing? And, and, of course, the two sides goes poles apart. And uh, they vilify one another. Some of the rhetoric is absolutely outstanding uh, that's going on in the kingdom of this world. Uh, those who are pro-life pro are woman haters and women oppressors and, and religious fanatics. And those who are, are pro-choice are baby killers. And, and so the two sides are poles apart. And they're not talking together. They're certainly not working together to accomplish what every poll shows most, American want, most Americans want. And that is to create a culture where abortions are rare at best. But they're not working together to that end. They're, they're, they're poles apart apart. Wrapped up in this issue is a multitude of deep philosophical questions about which it's impossible to get a public consensus on. Things that have always been debated in uh, Western culture, in fact, in, in almost every culture. When does personhood begin? When does the, the unborn become uh, in the image of God? When does the baby receive a soul? And who should be in the position to make these choices? Uh, the world's never had a consensus on this. Western culture certainly has never had a consensus on this. And it may surprise some to find out that the church has never had a consensus on this. Some, the traditionists, they thought that the soul was their right of conception. Others thought that the soul entered the baby and it became in the image of God in the second trimester. That was St. Augustine. Others thought, like St. Thomas Aquinas, that the soul entered the baby when it was born and took its first breath. Because it says in Genesis that God breathed in the Adam the breath of life and he became a living creature. There's always been diversity on that. And so there's diversity here in this culture, and there's no publicly agreeable way of resolving these issues. So people just have strong opinions, and they polarize, and they talk past each other. 
And the whole goal is to win instead of working together. Wrapped up even further in the mess of this is that candidates and parties come in packages. And, uh, and, and so uh, uh, how you weigh in on this in terms of the, the kingdom of the world will partly depend on how you weigh your feelings about abortion versus the issue of homelessness and poverty and, and hunger and, and the economy and domestic affairs and foreign affairs and a multitude of other things. And as most of us know, you, you go to vote and you're conflicted because you, you care deeply about this issue and that candidate's on that camp, but you care deeply about this issue and that candidate's over there. So how are you going to resolve this? This is why we bring a coin and we flip it and we say, oh, Lord, you determine. No, that's not what we do. But I'm just showing it, it's, a, it's a complex, ambiguous kind of an issue. And see, when the church accepts that way of defining the problem and that way of trying to resolve the problem, which is no resolution at all, the church disinherits all that kingdom of the world conflict, and the church is divided, and the devil laughs all the way to the bank. What I'm wondering is this. Why accept that way of defining the problem, and why uh, accept those, uh, those, those, those two solutions? Is there a distinct kingdom of God approach that we can have to this thing? And I want to su suggest to you that there is. Look at, as a kingdom of God person, I know that God's the creator. God's the creator. Life, life comes from God. It's not just a chemical thing. And so that which is growing inside of this, this mother is, is a creation of God, and that gives it incredible value. And so as a kingdom person, I don't need to figure out. I, I don't need to figure out all the metaphysical issues, the philosophical issues. I don't need to get involved in that whole quagmire to say that, that, that this unborn child is worth sacrificing for. It, it, it's worth me, me coming underneath. And this woman, I don't need to know about her past, whether she was promiscuous or not, how this, this situation, I don't need to know anything about her. What I do know is that Jesus Christ died for her, so she has got unsurpassable worth. So as a kingdom of God person, I just have this question. How can I come under? underneath both the woman and the child inside of her? How can I love this woman and the child inside of her? How can I sacrifice for this woman and the child inside of her? How can I serve this woman and the child inside of her? How can I sacrifice of my time and my resources and my energy to make it a viable possibility that this woman goes full term with this child? That's a distinct kingdom of God way of doing pro-life. You see, anyone can vote and anyone can holler and anyone can carry a sign. Anyone can say, here's what you ought to do. But who's going to do Calvary towards this woman? Who's going to get in the trenches with this woman? Who's going to sacrifice of themselves for this woman? Who's going to walk with this woman and deal with the issues she's got and the fears that she's got? Who's going to bleed for this woman to make it a viable possibility? Not just while the child is growing inside, but after the child is born. That's a doing pro-life kingdom of God style. Who's going to walk with this woman? And deal with the medical and financial and personal, relational and psychological and emotional and spiritual issues. Who's going to say to this woman, we will do this instead of you should do this? That's a distinct kingdom of God perspective. Let me tell you about Dorothy. Dorothy is a woman who had a best friend, and this best friend's daughter got pregnant. Uh, the, the, the daughter had a closer relationship with Dorothy, Dorothy than her own mother, and that happens sometimes. was very close to Dorothy, and so uh, she didn't go to, to her parents about this. She went to Dorothy because she was afraid that if she went to her parents, uh, they would kick her out of the house, which in fact they did. So she goes to Dorothy, and she tells about her situation. She wants to have, ha have an abortion. Dorothy just asked the kingdom question, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I come under you? How can I walk with you? I... I, I how, can, can we get through this together? Can we get through? You're not alone. You'll, I, you'll, never be alone. you'll never be alone on this. 
I'm, I'm in the trenches with you. And that gave this woman the strength to make the choice to go full term with this child. Dorothy said, if you decide not to do that, I'll still love you, but, but I, I think it would be better for all parties concerned if, if, if we just go through this uh, together. And so they walked with this together. When the parents kicked this woman out, uh, this young lady out, Dorothy took her into her home. And that broke apart her friendship with this other person. But she was willing to suffer for this. You see, she was willing to pay a price. The kingdom always involves a price. And then when it came to buying clothing and when it came to medical expenses and getting to appointments and, and dealing with a, a, a boyfriend issue that was getting pretty difficult, Dorothy was there for her. This woman was never alone. And then when it came to asking the question, should you keep this child or put it up, Dorothy said, if you want to put the child up, we'll find a wonderful home for it. Uh, we'll, we'll go through all of that, whatever costs are involved. But if you want to keep this child, I would consider it an honor to be this child's godparent, and I'll be there, and I'll help raise this child. That's being pro-life in a kingdom of God way. It costs you something. You, you, put your, you walk the talk. It costs a whole lot more than voting a certain way. Now, here's what you need to know is Dorothy didn't always vote pro-life. As she looked at the complexity of the issues and whatnot, yada, 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 more often than not, in fact, she voted pro-choice. But I'm telling you this, uh, Dorothy, I think, is more pro-life than I am. And more pro-life than, I think, most people who vote pro-life, what they do uh, for a half hour every four years or every two years. Uh, I, I'm, you know, it, the kingdom of God is a distinct kind of a kingdom. My vision for Woodland Hills Church is that we would become a place where uh, a people who, who are pro-life in a Dorothy kind of a way, in a kingdom of God kind of a way. And that's not saying anything about what you're going to do behind the curtain when you vote. It, 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 I'll never tell someone how they're supposed to vote. I will tell us all, me included, how we're supposed to live. And that's a whole lot more important kind of a question because that's a kingdom of God kind of a question. And my vision for Wilden Hills Church is that we're, 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 we become a people who are pro-life in a Dorothy kind of a way, who care about the mothers and the child and come underneath and serve and empower with a non-judgmentalism, who trust the power of Calvary love more than we trust the power of law, who trust the power under more than we'll ever trust the power over, and who are willing to get into trenches with people and, and make things viable. And see, in doing that, you're ascribing worth to the person, you're also ascribing worth to God. And that's the distinct kingdom of God way of approaching issues. We don't have to buy into all the complexity and the issues and their ways of defining the problems, all those things that, are, that characterize the kingdom of the world. Our task is profoundly simple, profoundly straightforward. How can I honor God by ascribing worth to you, by agreeing with God about your worth, and do that not just with my words, but in terms of my life? One final thing, and that is this. You may be thinking to yourself, well, I, I, it wouldn't be viable for me to do a Dorothy. You know, I, I can't be pro-life like that because well, the only time I have time for is, the vo is, is a vote. And I, so I can't do a Dorothy. I, I have my own family. We don't have enough room and yada, yada, yada. You know what? And that, that's very true. And not everyone's called to be a Dorothy to that have that particular ministry. But here, here I want to go back to what I said before the offering. We're in this together. And the question we've got to ask is how can we bleed together? How can we bleed together for women who are scared because they have a pregnancy they don't want? And uh, one of the things you got to know is that when we bleed together, when, when you sacrifice by giving, well, part of what that does is supports a counseling center and a family ministry that already is dealing with some of these issues, and we do it in a Dorothy kind of way. 
My vision is, is for the church is that, that uh, as we move forward on this youth center, that youth center will be a magnet for girls who have got unwanted pregnancy. And I, wanna, I want the chance to be, have some Dorothys available for them. I want to have a chance to influence them. I want to be in on their life. I want to make a difference in their life. I want to see God turn, turn something around for the good. And, and you're, maybe you're not called to be a Dorothy. I'm not called to be a Dorothy in terms of an explicit personal relationship. But we're all called to sacrifice in a Dorothy kind of way to free up Dorothys to be involved in people's lives like that. That's how we do it together. We bleed together for that to happen. One of the reasons why we're so intent on paying off this debt is so we'll free up a half a million dollars a year just in terms of the interest we free up. How many Dorothys can you fund with a half a million dollars a year? Think about it. Think of the impact that you can have. And the ministry, that's not just about this particular ministry. It's about every ministry we do because every ministry we do should have a Dorothy character to it. We have over 120 different ministries, and all of them in their own way are about ascribing unsurpassable worth to people at cost to ourselves. It costs us something when we come together, and that's why we do it, and the ministry of God goes forward. I end with just this question. Always ask, always ask. Before you give kingdom authority to the world's way of defining issues, ask, what is a distinctly kingdom of God, Calvary coming under cross way of looking at this issue? And what's a distinct kingdom of God, Calvary kind of love way of approaching this issue? Don't let the world set the agenda. We got a unique thing to say, a unique thing. We got a unique mission to carry out. We don't have to answer the multitude of unresolvable issues of the world in order to do it. Would you close your eyes to pray? I want you to know that the, the front of the auditorium will be open if you want to come forward for prayer for any reason. I encourage you to do that. If you're not a kingdom person, you've never surrendered, you've never joined this kingdom, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that's got nothing but nothing to do with how relatively religious or not you've been. But if you want to do that this morning, I encourage you to come up. And to my right and your left, there's a stunningly good-looking man who would love to give you some information about how to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. I just want to close with this prayer. Dad, I end where we began, and that is let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Let your unique, distinct, super radical, life-giving, self-sacrificing kingdom come in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. Uh, and, 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 and how we steward our time and our resources, how we relate to our kids and our spouse and our neighbors, and how we bleed together to see your kingdom of God go forward. Let your kingdom come, Lord God. And as we leave this place, Lord God, remind us that we're missionaries who've got a profoundly simple thing, single thing to do, and that is to be you to other people. Holy Spirit, we can't do it on our own. Holy Spirit, we need you. Empower us, remind us, motivate us to let your light shine, and to know that the darkness cannot comprehend that light. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Go out and be missionaries. The front of the auditorium is open. God bless.